Well, good morning, and uh, again, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. We have, uh, have studied through the book of Isaiah the last year and a half, and last week we concluded that book, but we're not, we're not quite done yet. Um, in fact, uh, you can participate. I think there's something in your program, but also out uh, in the foyer uh, at the Ministry Central, there's a little piece of paper out there that talks about worship and creative arts fair. And if there was a particular passage in Isaiah or verse um, or, or multiple ones that kind of grabbed your heart or um, touched you in a special way, and, and, and I want to invite your creative juices to begin to flow, uh, maybe come up with a particular drawing or, or um, a poem or words or something where you creatively... Um, take that passage and uh, do something unique with it. And over the summer, they'll be um, displayed out here in our ministry central. Uh, it just gets you connected a little bit more with the book of Isaiah and in a passage uh, that particularly meant something to you. So just want to put that out to you. Um, uh, I can preach. I, there's not, that's about as creative as I can get. I can draw flies, they say, but uh, that's about it as far as my drawing abilities. So uh, get your creative juices to flow and see what you could come up with. Hey, I'm, I'm not sure, did you happen to see in the local paper this last week an interesting uh, story about a, a conflict that's going on with a parcel of land um, east of Middletown. It's about 20 acres of land that the, the people who own that parcel of land have, well, since 1836, it's believed to have been in Warren County. Did you read this? Since 1830, over 180 years, this parcel of land, the owners have thought they were in Warren County. And it, apparently, someone went out and surveyed it, and they're wrong. It's actually in Frederick County, and it's causing a bit of a stir because for 180-some years, people have paid taxes to Warren County. They've put their kids in Warren County schools. They, uh, you know, have voted in Warren County. And all along, they've been actually living in Frederick County. And it's causing a bit of a disruption. Why? Because of a s surveyor's tool that uh, kind of laid out what really was true. Truth has a way of disrupting things. You know, a friend comes up to you and points out truthfully some issue of your life, uh, character flaw maybe, and all of a sudden it gets a little disruptive in your life. A medical test comes back accurately diagnosing these troublesome symptoms you've been having, and now your life is a bit disruptive. Your home inspector tells you that your home is full of mold, and it's got to be remediated immediately. And, and all of a sudden, your world is turned upside down. Your life is disruptive. Truth has a way of doing that. It's like God's Word. The truth of God's Word can cause great disruption in a person's life. Just ask the people in Nazareth when Jesus got up and preached in his hometown. Um, 
Mike read, we read earlier from that account in Luke chapter 4, the account of Jesus coming to his hometown synagogue, being given the scroll of Isaiah, the very book we've been studying, and he opens up that scroll to this portion of Scripture, Isaiah 61, and he begins to read. Now, Jesus couldn't have picked a better text to read in Nazareth than Isaiah 61. It was, I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, the favorite text of people in Nazareth in Galilee. Let me explain why and put a little of a background here to this. Nazareth was in um, a region uh, of Palestine up to the north, Galilee to the north. And for centuries, Galilee, that region, was dominated and controlled um, and, and inhabited by Gentiles. There's no Jews up in that area, that region. In fact, um, it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. Isaiah even mentions this, chapter 9, verse 1, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. You see, that region was a Gentile region, the Galilee. But all that changed in the, in the second century B.C. when the Maccabean family rose up and revolted against the oppressors that had dominated the Jewish people for centuries. And the Maccabean family won control over the southern portion of Palestine, that region of Jerusalem and Judea. They controlled that area. And over the next few decades, the the Jewish influence began to grow. And it grew by, um, by sending out Um, settlers, Jewish people from Judea into these northern regions that were controlled by the Gentiles and and building settlements there, much like we see in modern-day Israel with uh, Jewish settlements taking place in the Palestinian West Bank. Well, that's not new. They picked that up from the Maccabean era. Jewish settlers moving north, extending Jewish control through these settler towns in the Galilee, in a place like Nazareth. Nazareth was one of those settler towns, a Jewish settlement. And um, because of that, you can assume that the Jewish people who lived in Nazareth, uh, descendants of these settlers from the second century B.C., were fiercely nationalistic. They were fiercely Jewish to the core. Kenneth Bailey in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, explains that colonial outposts like Nazareth uh, were Jewish through and through, even like in Nazareth when there was a Roman garrison there. In fact, even more so, Bailey writes, because of the Roman garrison, the inhabitants of Nazareth would have been fiercely Jewish. Now, I mention this because, again, Isaiah 61, as I mentioned, was one of the favorite passages of, of people like these Nazareth settlers. 
go back to Isaiah 61 for a moment. Let me try to explain why Isaiah 61 was such a favorite passage. It begins with the words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This was a messianic passage. The one who was going to come proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance on Israel's enemies and bring in this joy and this gladness that will turn the mourning into shouts of praise. Now, if we keep reading in verse 4, that thought continues. Then, when this happens, when this one on whom the Spirit of the Lord has descended, when he comes, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins, and they will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers, verse 5, will stand and pasture your flocks. Foreigners will be farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priest of the Lord, and you will be spoken of as ministers over God, and you will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Verse 7, instead of your shame, you'll have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion, and therefore they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. What is this passage saying? A day is coming, a favorable year of the Lord upon the Jewish people, even a day of vengeance upon their enemies in which the tables will be turned. And one day the Jewish people will be living in the, in the wealth of the other people's wealth and work and servitude to them. The people of Nazareth would have certainly viewed themselves as they would read a passage like Isaiah 61 as the recipients of this, that they were on the receiving end of those Gentiles who now will farm the land for them, that the wealth of the Gentiles will now come to them. They will eat the wealth of the Gentiles. It'll be the foreigners who will take care of the, the vineyards for them. Nazareth was a settlement raised up from the Gentiles. It was a restored city, once ruined. And so Isaiah 61 was a favorite passage of the people in the synagogue that day. You would read a passage like this and you would say, oh man, man, isn't God good? Look what he's going to do. Those Gentiles who have oppressed us, why, they're going to get squashed. I mean, we're going to, we're going to dominate them. Isn't God good? He's, he's going to make them serve us. They're going to minister to us. It was a passage 
that would have been very popular, very attractive to the people of Nazareth. It would have played right into their nationalistic pride, these, these descendants of these settlers who had left their own homes in Judea to settle in these regions of the Galilee of the Gentiles, claim it for Jewish pride. Now, let's go back to, uh, to Luke chapter 4, to the passage, Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus, that day, gets up into that synagogue, his hometown, Nazareth, and he begins to read from the book of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now notice where he stopped reading. The very next line in the Isaiah passage is, and the day of vengeance of our God. But those words were not uttered by Jesus. He stopped right after saying, the favorable year of the Lord. How odd. How odd that Jesus would stop the passage in mid-sentence almost, in mid-verse, right at that point where judgment and, and servitude is being pronounced against the Gentiles, the favorite part of the passage of these Nazarite Jews. And then he said, he closed the book, verse 20, gave the scroll back to the attendant. Luke records that all eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. This was a thoroughly messianic passage. This was their favorite text. All eyes are fixed on him. And then he said in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22 says they were all speaking well of him, wondering at his gracious words which were falling from his lips, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Why, well, we, we remember this little boy. He, he grew up right over there. He would play in his, his father's carpenter shop. In fact, we have some pieces in our, in our home that he actually made. Is this not Joseph's son? And yet, he quotes from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he says, this is fulfilled now, knowing their questioning spirit, their need of probably some proof, Jesus says this in verse 23, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard was done at Capernaum, now do here in your hometown as well. Jesus had done some miraculous things down in Capernaum, closer to the Sea of Galilee another fiercely nationalistic Jewish area. Um, if, 
if you're saying this is fulfilled in our hearing, then, then do something. Do something. Prove yourself. Do it here in your hometown as well. He said in verse 24, Well, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over the land. And yet, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow there. And, he continued, verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now we can't miss the reaction from the people in Nazareth in the synagogue after Jesus spoke those words. Verse 28, and all the people, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up, they drove him out of the city, they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. They're going to throw this guy out of town or kill him. But passing through their midst, he went his own way. Now, come on, folks, why such a violent reaction? Why such rage? And I've been preaching for 37, 38 years, and I, I have people fall asleep on me, but violently react? My goodness. He gives this illustration of Elisha the prophet and Elijah the prophet, and all of a sudden, they're incensed with him. They want to kill him. Why such a violent reaction? Well, look closely at that account that Jesus referred to, the Elisha and Elijah account, because there were two other people involved, right? In the days of Elijah, the prophet, in the day of famine, Elijah was sent, verse 26, to no one in the land, but only to the land of Sidon, to a city called Zarephath, to a woman who was a widow there, a Gentile, Sidon not Israel. And he, Elisha, there were many lepers in the land of Israel in those days, but it was a Syrian, a Gentile that was healed that God sent Elisha the prophet to. What was Jesus' point? God cared for Gentiles. God expressed His love and grace and mercy to Gentiles. God chose to care for the enemies of Israel. Again, remember where Jesus was when He spoke these words? The synagogue of Nazareth, a settler town. For five, six centuries, its fervor for nationalism, for Zionism, for, for Israel was preeminent. 
fiercely nationalistic Jews. That's where Jesus grew up. And instead of quoting the part of Isaiah 61 about the vengeance, the day of vengeance of our God, Jesus spoke only of the favorable year of the Lord, of grace and mercy to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for the oppressed. Who does he think he is? Coming into Nazareth, and not talking about the day of vengeance, which would have received him high fives and accolades, but talking about the favorable year of the Lord and showing them the heart of God towards Gentiles. Who did he think he was? <laughs> the Messiah, the anointed one, the disruptor of people. The one to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, his message of grace and mercy that extended not just to the Jewish people, a message of, of God's love and grace extended to the whole world. And Jesus busted into this world of, of nationalistic zeal and pride he comes erupting into their turf, their place of self-centered meism, uh, Jewishness, and he disrupts it all with truth. Unnerving, disturbing, disruptive truth. And the people there didn't like it one bit. Truth has a way of doing that. And by the way, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he comes into the synagogue of our life, and he is the great disruptor, the disruptive force that exposes the areas of our selfishness and pride and greed and that self-centered look and he disrupts it with his mercy and grace for others see to the husband he says or who says i i deserve a wife who respects me and submits to me honors me i deserve that he disruptively comes and says, love your wife like Christ loved the church and died for her. To the wife who says, I will not be treated this way. I've had it. I demand to be loved unconditionally. Jesus comes with disruptive truth. And he says, as I was reviled and did not revile in return, as I suffered the hardship, I call you wives in the same way 
to suffer so that you can win your husband without a word. To the person abused by the sinfulness of another person, the disruptive words of Jesus comes and says, forgive as I have forgiven you. And do not take into account a wrong suffered. Disruptive. To the politicized Christian, Jesus says, your citizenship is not on this planet. It's in heaven. To the racist, he comes and says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, black or white, male or female. We all equally share in the image of God, our creator. To the one oppressed by racism, Jesus comes disruptively and he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. And if they strike you on the cheek, turn the other. If they take the cloak, give them the shirt off your back. To the rich, Jesus says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get to heaven. Go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and come follow me. To the poor, he says, give your last coin, the widow's might, and follow me. <laughs> Disruptive. It's like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear this stuff, Jesus. He stirs things up. And it's hard to take. And something inside us says, no, I don't want to hear that. No, Lord, don't ask me to do that. I don't want to go there, Lord. I'm quite comfortable where I'm in now. A widow in Zarephath? <laughs> Not me. A Syrian general enemy? Let him die as a leper. You see, Jesus does not conform his word to our agenda. He demands that our agenda gets conformed to his word. Why? Because our agenda is so oftentimes fraught with a self-centered meism, a self-protective, self-loving goal. And the heart of Jesus looks beyond the me to the need to the widow at Zarephath. To the Syrian leper. It's an agenda that loves the unlovable, that saves the lost, that gives life to the dead. And in the end, His grace and His mercy will always win out the favorable year of the Lord. The problem, I think, in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth that day the, the real problem of the people in that synagogue um, was a clash between what they perceived to be true and what was really true. There was a mishandling of the Word of God, which led to a misunderstanding of the Word of God. And what they misunderstood was that Isaiah 61, that God's intention when He wrote that was to understand there were two phases of the Messiah's coming. 
Phase one was the favorable year of the Lord, to pronounce the favorable year of the Lord. But there was a gap between that sentence and the very next sentence and the day of vengeance. That's phase two. That's the Messiah's second coming. And they were fixated on the second, the day of vengeance against their enemies because that's what they wanted to hear. But Jesus stopped in mid-sentence because it was the favorable year of the Lord that he was focused on. That was his mission. I came not to be served, he said, but to serve and to give my life a ransom. And two and a half years later, after he spoke those words in his hometown, oh, the enemies caught up with him. The disruptive words of Jesus finally reached a point of enough's enough, and they, they put him on a cross and they killed him, all according to God's plan. To die for our sins, that's part of the proclamation of the favorable year, the, the time of grace and mercy. And he died on a cross, and he paid for our sins because God so loved the world. Yes, the widow in Zarephath, the Syrian leper, the world. An idea that the people in the synagogue of Nazareth could not stomach. The divine disruptor had shown up. Where is Jesus disrupting us? Maybe today? Anything he's been gently tapping on your shoulder, speaking to your heart, but it's, it's just too disruptive. It would cause us to rearrange our day, our week, God forbid, our life. Where is his word speaking truth into our hearts? that maybe flat out we just don't want to hear. I got a call this week from a friend of mine in another, in another community who, um, she, she said, Mark, I need some advice. I'm kind of in a bind. And she went on to explain that she has an elderly friend, a lady uh, in that community who had fallen and broken her shoulder this last weekend. This elderly lady lives alone. She has no family. This friend of mine is probably one of her closest friends, and she called her from the emergency room, and of course she went there, and, and they patched her up, and they, the next day they were going to send her home, but she said, I, I, I can't go home. Um, and she was right. My friend said, well, why don't you come and stay with me for a few days until your next doctor's appointment, until things are assessed, and then we can go from there. But let's stop at your place and get a few things before I take you home. No, 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 I, I'm fine. <laughs> no, you're not fine. You just got the clothes you're wearing. Let's go to your place and get some things. And No, 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 we, we have to do this. And my friend is quite insistent, and so they went to this lady's house, and my friend just boldly 
went into her house and and then she realized why this lady had fallen, why this lady did not want her in her house. She is a hoarder par excellence. <laughs> there was absolutely no place to set her foot, to walk. She said, I've never seen something like this in my life. Bags, and those black bags, bags of trash piled high that had never been thrown out. Trash. The stench, several cats digging in the trash. There was no way that the doctor, I don't think, will ever let her go back to that house until something is taken care of. And so my friend called me and said, I, I'm over my head on this one. I never expected this. A couple of days in my home while she's convalescing, but uh, this is out of my league. Uh, this is the last thing I need in my life. But God had tapped her on the shoulder, disrupting her life. I said, I think I've got a friend of mine in that same community um, involved in a, a really good church. Now, let me call him. He's a counselor. He, he may have, I'll get back with you. And so I called this friend of mine, and he graciously, probably thinking the same thing, this is the last thing I need in my schedule, but all right. And so he said, let me call your friend and get the information and about this elderly lady, and I'll, I'll see what I can find out. The next day he called me. This was Tuesday or Wednesday this week. And he was chuckling. He said, Mark, you'll never believe this. Does God have a sense of humor? He said, that elderly lady, who, by the way, is also an atheist, I mean, she has nothing to do with God, he said, she lives down the street from us. We've been praying for her for 12 years. My son has mowed her yard for 11 years. Uh, I think our church can do something. We'll take it from here. And in a phone call, the disruptor of the ages had come into the life of these two people, and now that elderly lady and he's going to disrupt her, I have no doubt, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's going to disrupt that local church to come and help that lady clean up that house. And he's disrupting my friend because she's going to continue to house this lady. You see, God cares for the widow of Zarephath. He cares for the, the leper of, of Syria. He cares for our neighbors. He cares for our coworkers. He cares for our, our, our fellow students in school. 150 of you were disrupted this week as volunteers for kids camp. It's disruptive. But, but that's how God works. <laughs> because it's the favorable year of the Lord. This is the favorable year of the Lord. And there's a world of people out there who need to understand there's a God of grace and mercy Oh, there is a day of vengeance coming. That's phase two, when Jesus returns again. But today is a favorable year of the Lord. And there's people all around us who need to understand that and hear it and live it. Where is God disrupting your life? 
Are we open to it? Are we willing to let the Holy Spirit speak to us? I've spoken to you for these last 40 minutes. How about let's bow our head and quietly, maybe the Holy Spirit will speak to us something disruptive in the quiet silence right now. Would you please bow your head? Father God, you may be implanting in our minds right now a, a face, a, a, a picture, a name, a, an area of our life that we have been holding on to that we haven't relinquished to your control. An old habit, an old harboring some old bitterness, a grudge against someone. Maybe right now, Father, your spirit is speaking something disruptive to someone here right now. Maybe it's to someone who has believed up until this day that it's their goodness that is going to get them to heaven. It's their religion that's going to make a difference. It's, it's their good works that you will someday weigh in the great scales of time and and they're just hoping against hope that those good works will outweigh their bad works and you'll let them into heaven. Um, but they've heard that, Father, you sent your Son into the world to die for those sins. And you give a free gift of eternal life to anyone who puts their faith, not their works, their faith in Christ and Christ alone. You might be disrupting someone right now, Father, with the good news of your grace and mercy. Continue to speak to us, Father. Continue to conform us into the image of Jesus, who with boldness, with incredible courage, with guts, Jesus, you went to that hometown, to those radical Jews in that synagogue, and you boldly disrupted their life. Do it to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.